I'm Joe Cadwell, the host of the show, and on today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with co-writer of the newly released book, Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. His name is Matthew Campbell, and he's an award-winning reporter and editor for Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Together, he and his co-author, Kit Shalell, have put together a page-turner of a book and a real triumph of investigative journalism. We'll open our conversation as Matthew gives us an overview of the role international shipping plays in global economics and how modern-day pirates differ from the romantic Jack Sparrow Pirates of the Caribbean archetype. Next, we'll uncover the insurance scam surrounding the supposed pirating and actual scuttling of the ship Brilliant Virtuoso, an oil-laden supertanker with an estimated worth of $170 million off the coast of Yemen, Africa. We'll then introduce a host of characters that add color to the pages of Matthew's book, including pirates, salvers, private investigators, and a sports car racing Greek shipping magnet known as Super Mario. And we'll wrap up our conversation by discussing the life and suspicious death of David Mockett, the Lloyds of London ship surveyor who died in a car bomb assassination shortly after visiting the ill-fated ship. After the episode, be sure to check out the show notes for more information about Matthew Campbell and his book, Dead in the Water. And now on to the show. Matthew Campbell, welcome to Grit Nation. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Hey, Matthew, thank you so much for taking your time. I know you're, uh, you're we're zooming in from Singapore right now, uh, nine hours uh, ahead or behind where I'm at in, uh, in Portland. But I really appreciate you coming on the show this morning to talk to me about your book, Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and the Global Maritime Conspiracy that you co-wrote with Kit Chattel. Did I pronounce his last name correctly, Matthew? Uh, Kit Kit Chalel. Great. Well, thank you again so much for uh, for being here. I know the book it was just a fantastic read for me this year. I really enjoyed it. And uh, for the people who have yet to get their hands on Dead in the Water, I was hoping you could just give us a brief overview of what the storyline is about, Matthew, and then we'll kind of just unfold it as it goes. So Dead in the Water actually unfolds from one event, uh, which was a pirate attack or an apparent pirate attack, which occurred in, in the Gulf of Aden in 2011. And it turned out this pirate attack was the center of a huge conspiracy, one of the most elaborate scams uh, ever attempted, uh, certainly in the shipping industry and, and probably beyond the shipping industry, too. And uh, what followed was a 10-year uh, legal and law enforcement saga uh, in which, unfortunately, uh, one of the participants was murdered uh, and his murder uh, has never been solved and no one has ever been brought to justice for it. So those are the broad uh, strokes of, of what, uh, you know, from having read the book is, is a pretty complex story. Yeah, for sure. And for the folks who don't know, the Gulf of Aden is between Yemen and I believe Djibouti which is sort of the around the Horn of Africa and it leads up into the Red Sea. Red Sea leads to the Suez Canal. So it's a it's a pretty heavily trafficked area uh, for global commerce, isn't it? Exactly. So any vessel uh, going from Europe to Asia that isn't going to go the long way around uh, around the Cape and the bottom of Africa uh, has to go through the Gulf of Aden, which which as you said is it's kind of rectangular between Yemen in the north the Horn of Africa and the South Horn of Africa, meaning uh, Djibouti for sure, 
uh, and largely Somalia. So at the time when the book begins in 2011, Somali piracy was a huge problem. There were uh, pirate attacks, at least being attempted every two or three days, and, and a good proportion of those were succeeding and vessels were being hijacked pretty much all the time. And probably most famously, the uh, I believe it was the Maersk, Alabama, the ship that the movie Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks was based off of. And this was one of those Somali pirate attacks. They successfully boarded the uh, the Maersk, Alabama, and they they captured the crew, captured Captain Phillips, and you know, see the movie if you want to know more about that. But but your book is a little bit different. This isn't a, a legitimate piracy sort of uh, endeavor. This is more like a scam, an insurance scam, isn't it? They were fake pirates. Uh, In a word, yes. Uh, As it became apparent through a great deal of hard work by the investigators involved with this case, uh, these pirates were not what they appeared to be. They were not, you know, uh, Somali bandits out to capture ships and get a quick buck. They had been hired essentially to stage a pirate attack and to uh, destroy this very large vessel, the Berlante Virtuoso, which was a 274 meter long oil tanker. So a huge super tanker uh, carrying a hundred million dollars of oil. Uh, And there was uh, this elaborate conspiracy to destroy it, cover up uh, the circumstances of the destruction and then uh, go to Lloyd's of London for $100 million uh, in insurance. But through the uh, hard work of a number of investigators uh, and lawyers uh, and police, in some cases, this was all unraveled uh, over the subsequent seven or eight years. And Matthew, why is this story different? Why did this one get a book written about it? Why did it become such an in-depth investigation into something that seemed like it was fairly common? Maybe it wasn't necessarily a, a, a pirating uh, attempt. It was a scam. I think over the, the centuries, Lloyds of London, which hopefully we'll, we'll understand a little bit more about Lloyds of London and how they operate, is are used to, to, to dealing with these things to some extent. Why did this one take a different path? Fraud in the maritime world is absolutely routine. This is something that happens all the time. Uh, Certainly anyone in the maritime industry is aware that there are uh, frauds and scams constantly. Uh, There are lots of insurance frauds. Uh, This one was different in a few ways. Uh, One was uh, the means, uh, certainly staging a fake pirate attack uh, in order to destroy a uh, $100 million uh, oil tanker is not something anyone had tried before. Uh, And the other thing that made it exceptional was a murder. Uh, The killing of a man named David Mockett, who was a Marine surveyor working for Lloyd's of London on this case, who was killed by a car bomb uh, in Yemen where he lived on July 20th, 2011, uh, just as he was really digging into what had happened and beginning to have doubts about uh, the story as it had been told to him. So he was really on to something. And uh, probably uh, with more time could have gotten much closer to unraveling it. But he was killed before that could happen. And as you can imagine, uh, the murder of someone involved uh, in the casualty, as it's known in the maritime world, 
uh, put this into a very different category uh, for people in that industry and, and also at Lloyd's of London. We'll again, hopefully get into more of David Mockett's uh, story. There's a lot of characters. As I was reading your book, it was it was reading like a very intriguing mystery novel because there was always the introduction of a new character. And and it really kept me uh, spellbound as I as I went through the different chapters. But let's if we could just step back a little bit. And what can you tell us about the, the global shipping industry and its effect on world commerce and how important and how unseen really global shipping is to, to the world's economy nowadays? Shipping is kind of the unsung hero of the global economy. If you uh, look around any room you're in, uh, most of what's there got there on a boat. Uh, Very little in terms of overall volume is shipped by air, for example. So just about anything manufactured in Asia, which is, of course, the workshop of the world, gets to North America, gets to Europe uh, on container vessels. Obviously, uh, huge volumes of oil and gas go by sea. So uh, really, shipping is the the sort of circulatory system of the global economy. Without it, everything would stop. All of the products we depend on uh, would be unavailable or at least uh, very scarce. But what's amazing about it is for most people, it's kind of invisible. Uh, You know, time was not all that long ago that uh, New York and London were great maritime hubs, you know, with docks and sailors and sort of uh, burly longshoremen. Uh, you know, the west side of Manhattan is all piers, right? But there are no no ships at them anymore uh, because for a lot of reasons, one of them was the ships got too big. And so the ports had to be moved elsewhere. Uh, but basically, shipping has kind of receded into the background of modern life. It's It's kind of like utility wires or sewers. We just sort of take for granted that it's always going to be there. Uh, which is really remarkable when you learn, you know, as, as I did for this book, uh, just how dependent we are on it. Yeah. And, and that's sort of like the uh, what happened in the Suez Canal back in 2021 with I believe the ship's name was the Ever Given. And it uh, it ran aground in the Suez Canal and the the effects on global uh, economics, world economics were, were massive. The ripple effect went on for for weeks and months and, and probably still going on today. That that one clog in the uh, in the drain. That was a remarkable incident, uh, the grounding of the Ever Given uh, in the Suez, because it was this brief moment, and it really was about a week and no longer than that, when everybody cared about shipping all of a sudden. And everybody realized, first of all, how crucial shipping is. And second of all, how, you know, as a physical business, uh, it is dependent on physical realities, uh, one of which is uh, the width or lack thereof of key choke points. Uh, one of those choke points is uh, about eight blocks from where I'm sitting now, which is the Singapore Strait, uh, which is the only way from uh, the Indian Ocean uh, into the South China Sea without going a long way around Indonesia. Uh, but the the most important choke point of all is, of course, the Suez Canal, uh, which is very narrow, uh, is uh, over 150 years old, and uh, really dependent on uh, some quite finely tuned mechanics to get uh, these in massive, massive ships, you know, 300 meters long, some of them are in a 10 or 12 stories tall uh, through this really narrow waterway without crashing into each other or crashing into the bank in all kinds of weather. And uh, that's what happened to the Ever Given. And it did indeed uh, back up global commerce uh, in ways that took months to fully unravel. 
So here we have this network uh, going on, providing us the goods of day-to-day living. The ships have gotten bigger. The ports have gotten further away from, from where they used to be. And I believe there's a lot more automation on these ships now as well. So what used to be very labor-intensive has now been stripped down. And some of these, the largest ships can run, for lack of a better term, with a skeleton crew. So who are these people for the most part that are operating these vessels? That's a, a really excellent question uh, because most of us don't know any, uh, and, and that wouldn't have been the case uh, 75 or 80 or 100 years ago when, first of all, the shipping industry employed a lot more people uh, because uh, it was a much more labor-intensive business. Things have been heavily automated to the point where uh, even a really large container ship, some of the very largest vessels, uh, might have only 20 or 30 crew on board. They are these days uh, overwhelmingly from a few countries. Uh, the Philippines is number one. Uh, India and Indonesia are also right at the top. These are uh, men, you know, overwhelmingly men, uh, paid uh, well uh, by the standards of the countries where they come from. That's why they do it. But uh, by global standards, they are not paid very well at all. And for example, what is what is a typical monthly wage for, say, one of these Filipino uh, seamen? It's hard to generalize, obviously, you know, based on rank and and uh, who they're working for and what kind of work they're doing. But you know, I would guess that a a middle ranking Filipino seaman is making something like twenty to twenty five thousand U.S. dollars a year. Twenty five thousand U.S. dollars a year, and this is fairly arduous sea duty, I think, for a lot of these people. They're they're gone from home uh, nine, ten months out of the year or more, perhaps, aren't they? Exactly. So the way this works is you go on these long contracts, uh, typically for uh, several months, sometimes much longer. You would have one or two home leaves a year. So you get a long break at home of, say, four or five weeks. Uh, And it's a very unconventional family structure, although in a country like the Philippines, it's typical. Uh, Often your wife uh, would also be working overseas. That's not uncommon in the Philippines. So the kids are being raised by the grandparents. Uh, and you all try and get home uh, as much as you can. Inevitably, it's it's a uh, very strange way to live, certainly by the standards of, of most of us. But people do it because it's good money uh, by the standards of these countries for very hard work. Uh, but it is enough to uh, raise the living standard of your family and, and give your children a better future. And the particular ship that we're talking about, uh, named the Brilliant Virtuoso, this was manned primarily by Filipino crewmen, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, this uh, vessel, a uh, large oil tanker uh, called the Brillante Virtuoso, had uh, 26 crew, uh, all of them Filipino, which is a little bit unusual. Often there would be a little bit of a mix, uh, but in this case, it was a, a fully Filipino crew. And that's the captain, the chief engineer, all the way down the ranks to the lowliest seaman. They were all Filipino, and they were transiting in 2011, as again, we we mentioned, through the Gulf of Aden, when uh, a pirate attack happened. And now, again, in this particular period of time, I guess piracy was was pretty prevalent, as you were saying. And so there were measures or means that that a crew on a giant ship like this would take in order to fend off the pirates. And and can you talk to us, Matthew, a little bit about those uh, measures? By this point in 2011, the industry did have a pretty good playbook for defending against pirate attacks. Uh, Not good in the sense of effective, uh, but good in the sense uh, that it might uh, give ships a chance or might at least slow down the pirates uh, long enough for for help to arrive. 
So uh, one thing you could do, and, and which the crew of the Brillante Virtuoso did, is uh, string barbed wire around the deck to make it harder to board. You could uh, fix your fire hoses to uh, the railings up and down the ship so that you could blast an intruder off the hull if you had to. Uh, one thing um, which seems to me a little bit more like superstition than anything else is uh, you put a dummy on the stern uh, in coveralls to make it look like someone is on watch. Kind of like a scarecrow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so the crew of the Brillante did all these things. They uh, were prepared for uh, piracy as a risk. Uh, and yet uh, they were successfully boarded anyway uh, in uh, very strange circumstances. And, and the circumstances from reading your book, they were expecting a security team to, to arrive. And this was, again, one of those uh, best practices, I guess, when you got into a hot spot of piracy that you would then, uh, a shipping owner or shipping company would would enlist the service of armed security guards or sometimes even unarmed security guards in order to fend off attacks. And uh, that's how they were successfully boarded in this case, weren't, isn't it? That's right, Joe. So in this instance, uh, the pirates, the apparent pirates, posed as the security team that the Brillante was waiting for and essentially talked their way on board. And once they did get on board, they uh, leveled their Kalashnikov rifles and, and made clear that, you know, first of all, they weren't the security team. And second of all, that they were in charge and they were taking over the ship. Uh, but that ruse uh, did uh, succeed, apparently. And again, everything about this attack, you do have to put a little asterisk next to because it would turn out that uh, very little of it was what it seemed. Uh, that ruse did apparently get them on board and, and get them uh, past all of these defenses that the crew had set up ahead of time. Yeah, because it normally, I guess, uh, a piracy being what it is, the uh, they normally attack during the day and they're, they're high speed boats with armed people on them coming alongside, throwing grappling hooks onto the ship's uh, deck. And some of these ship's decks are, are quite a ways up and these fellows have to to climb up them. And and uh, again, why why aren't the typical ships armed, would you think? Why don't, why can't the, the, the crew defend themselves? Why would they have to rely on professional security teams to come on board? It took a long time for the shipping industry even to come around to the idea of having uh, armed security on ships. Uh, there are legal reasons for that, where, uh, you know, you're pulling into ports all over the world, which may have different rules on weaponry. Uh, for example, there are liability reasons. What happens if there's an accident? What happens if a crew member gets hold of a gun and, and goes postal, so to speak? So the industry was really reluctant uh, to either have armed security guards on board or, or indeed to arm crews, which is something that I think is, has never happened to my knowledge, certainly among big commercial shipping lines. Uh, but ultimately it was uh, figured out that this was really the only way to do it. And the reason that piracy in the Gulf of Aden, which was this huge hotspot, has largely come under control is the use of armed security guards who are now much more common on ships. And I believe I'm right in saying that uh, no vessel carrying armed security guards has ever been successfully hijacked by uh, pirates in the Gulf of Aden. So uh, it took a while. Uh, there was a lot of hesitancy uh, about having guns on ships. There was a lot of reluctance on the grounds of cost because, of course, this is expensive and shipping is a business that runs on pretty tight margins. Uh, but ultimately, uh, security guards were the way that the industry went. 
And that's the way the Brillante Virtuoso started off. They were going to have a security team on as they passed through the Gulf of Aden. And they were supposed to meet the security team. I think there were three or four fellows that were supposed to show up. Uh, and then all of a sudden here in the middle of the night, uh, pitch black, uh, a vessel approaches and the call comes down from the captain for one of the seamen to literally let these folks on board. And when they did come on board, it became apparent that they were not there as the security force, but they were actually the aggressors. That's right. Uh, they uh, rapidly took control of the ship. They herded the crew into the sort of rec- the rec room, you know, one of the, one of the spaces which only had one door. You could keep them all in there. Uh, so 24 of the crew get confined to this room. Uh, the captain goes with two of the intruders and the chief engineer goes with two other of the intruders. And at some point during the night, there is an explosion and uh, the ship is on fire and burning quite, uh, quite furiously. And the crew uh, figure out, first of all, that there is a fire because they can uh, see and, and breathe smoke coming into this room where they were confined. Uh, and that the ship is in danger. So they eventually come out of this room, uh, figure out that the pirates seem to have taken off, but uh, their lives are at risk. The ship may be destroyed by this fire, and they uh, abandon ship. Although before they do that, they do succeed in radioing uh, a a U.S. Navy cruiser, the Philippine Sea, that was in the area, and uh, they are rescued uh, from lifeboats by the U.S. Navy. And there, there you go. Thanks to the U.S. Navy, I was a uh, I was a sailor for four years in the Navy. And again, going back to the uh, not being armed while at sea just seems so foreign of a concept to me. But uh, so the Navy, the U.S. Navy rolls in, and it, it was one of those. I imagine one of those deterrence uh, of the the time that uh, that sort of kept some level of piracy at bay. And uh, but they they picked up the crew. They didn't take the entire crew, though, did they? I think they the, the chief engineer was left on board. So uh, interestingly, when the crew did abandon ship, only 25 of them got off. The chief engineer, uh, a Filipino man named Nestor Tavares, was missing and they couldn't figure out where he was. They went looking for him, but uh, as you can imagine, uh, by this point, there were there was smoke everywhere. The fire was growing in intensity. The metal of the hull was beginning to buckle. So eventually, eventually, these guys gave up uh, and they abandoned ship without uh, their colleague. Uh, ultimately, uh, he was spotted by a U.S. Navy helicopter, which was circling this burning vessel and uh, was rescued by uh, some U.S. Navy sailors in, uh, in what, are, what are called ribs, rigid hull inflatable boats uh, that had been dispatched to look for him and, and ultimately uh, engage pirates if, if any were found. Uh, but so by, by early morning the next day, all 26 of the crew were accounted for and on board this U.S. Navy cruiser. Now let's let's just back up just a bit, Matthew. Uh, pirates, you know, we're talking about this era again. Uh, piracy's been along for a long time. The romantic notion of the uh, the Jack Sparrow, the Johnny Depp sort of pirate, is is one interpretation of pirates. Probably never really based in fact, but piracy's been been going on as long as there's been ships at sea. What is modern piracy like today? It sounds like these fellows came on board, and I guess we'll get into the to the to the term scuttling of a vessel as opposed to actually taking it over. But how does modern day piracy differ from from piracy of of uh, days of old? Say, 
So the business model of modern day piracy is basically about ransom. Uh, that's the idea. So if we look at the the most pervasive example of modern day piracy, which is the Somali kind, uh, Somali pirates uh, operating from what has been for much of the last 30 years, a, a more or less ungoverned lawless country, Somalia, uh, have gone out in skiffs uh, armed with typically uh, Kalashnikov type assault rifles, taken control of commercial vessels, often way out to sea, which is one of the things that's amazing about this. Uh, these guys can get out hundreds and hundreds of nautical miles in these little boats. And once you have taken control of a vessel, uh, which is not easy, it's not easy to get on board, uh, particularly at speed. Uh, it's not easy necessarily to uh, take control because crews are now trained to resist in various ways, although not generally with firearms. Once you do that, the goal is to get the ship back to Somalia. Uh, you bring the vessel, its crew, and its cargo back to a safe location on the Somali coast. And then you bargain with the vessel and the cargo's owners, or actually more likely uh, their insurance companies, because that's who's now on the hook uh, for return of this property. And uh, if you do it right, you can get millions of dollars out of this, and it's a good business. Uh, obviously, uh, it's very hard. It's dangerous. It doesn't always work. Uh, but it is profitable enough, or at least it was profitable enough, uh, that uh, this became a huge industry in Somalia, uh, backed by some of the country's wealthiest people, believe it or not, uh, had investments in, in piracy operations. And, and I've also heard that uh, the, the money laundering aspect of, of piracy can extend beyond borders and that uh, even in the United States, we're, we're often used uh, to, to launder money that has been extorted from the, the ship owners or from their insurance companies. And it's, uh, again, a whole probably a subject of another book there. But uh, so, so the folks that are left on the hook, the ones you were talking about negotiating with the with the um, the insurers, everyone thinks of Lloyd's of London, but I, I get the the sense from reading your book that Lloyd's has never really been in the insurance business. So, what can you tell us about Lloyd's of London and their role in this? Lloyd's is is a fascinating institution, and we all kind of know that it has to do with insurance. But I think uh, even a lot of otherwise pretty well informed people would not have a great idea of what it is that Lloyd's actually does. So Lloyd's does not sell insurance, and in fact, it never has, which is a big misconception. What Lloyd's is, is a market. Uh, it is a physical location uh, in central London, where uh, certainly until, until COVID uh, made them move some things online, uh, business was done entirely face-to-face -face for over 300 years. And uh, what happens at Lloyd's is that actual insurers, uh, you know, Chubb, Prudential, uh, AIG, all the names we all know, come to divvy up risk. So if you have a really large insurance contract you need to put out, let's say you have uh, an oil rig, you know, that's worth a billion dollars. And if that oil rig is destroyed in a storm, uh, your insurers are on the hook for a billion dollars. Well, no one insurance company wants to bear all of that on its books alone. So what happens at Lloyd's is that dozens and dozens of insurance companies can come together to slice up that risk into little pieces. The result is that even if that oil rig uh, does get blown up, uh, no one insurer is facing a devastating loss. 
uh, and this risk can be uh, passed around and securitized and reinsured and re-reinsured. And that's the function of Lloyd's. It's a venue where all of these uh, very complicated transactions can happen uh, and where uh, just about anything uh, can uh, get insurance, uh, no matter how large, no matter how risky, no matter how esoteric. And that is where we get introduced to some of the other characters in the story. The, the ship owner had a policy, I assume, through somehow through Lloyd's of, of London, the risk absorber group that insured the Brillante Virtuoso. And this fella is, um, uh, excuse me if I pronounce his name wrong, why, perhaps if you would, Matthew, pronounce uh I'll refer to him as Super Mario from here on. But how do I pronounce his last name or how do you pronounce his last name? Mario Siliopoulos. So uh, Mario Siliopoulos is a very wealthy Greek shipping tycoon who uh, turned out to be the owner of the Brillante Virtuoso. And I say turned out to be because uh, one of the funny things about shipping is that ownership is very often anonymous. Vessels are owned by shell companies. Typically, you would incorporate a shell company just to own one ship at a time. Uh, That shell company will be registered somewhere like uh, the Caymans or Bermuda or the Marshall Islands secrecy jurisdictions. And finding what they call the UBO, the ultimate beneficial owner, uh, is not always easy. So one of the first tasks for the Lloyds insurers uh, who uh, were on the hook for the loss of the Brillante Virtuoso was to figure out who actually owned it, uh, which did take some time. But ultimately, they did trace ownership to uh, Mario Siliopoulos, this this wealthy ship owner uh, based in Piraeus, which is a, a suburb of Athens that's really the hub of the Greek shipping industry. And I found I found that particular part of your book extremely interesting. How Greece of all countries uh, became sort of this world shipping hub. I think at one point post World War II, seventy percent of the world shipping was was owned by Greek owners. Remember that accurately? Uh, that sounds a little high, but there is no question that Greece today is the most important ship owning nation in the world. Something like. Uh, 17 or 18 percent of global shipping by tonnage is Greek controlled. Wow. And that's like absolutely amazing. This is a country with the population of Illinois uh, whose other you know main export is olive oil. And yet it has a, an absolutely dominant position uh, in shipping. You know, there are more Greek owned ships than there are American or Japanese or, or British or Chinese owned ships. Uh, just incredible. And uh, Greek ship owners are the most powerful people in that country. Uh, they actually have an exemption from corporate income tax, which is written into the Greek constitution, believe it or not. Uh, and uh, they, they have a lot of pull, a lot of influence. And uh, Mario Siliopoulos is uh, very much a member of, of that group. And Mario is a very, very interesting character indeed. Uh, the name Super Mario, I guess, comes from his passion for racing cars throughout the, the, the countryside and our high-end performance cars and the, the Greek countryside. And he, he sponsors teams and things like that. So Super Mario is the, uh, the owner of the Brillante Virtuoso. The ship apparently pirated, but uh, we'll begin to find out that that was a ruse, a scam to try to get over something on Lloyd's of London. And uh, how, how did that get discovered and how how did those all those pieces start to get connected there matthew the way that this was ultimately put together was through a lot of very difficult investigative work 
led by uh, two individuals in particular uh, who are who are kind of the protagonists of the book. Uh, their names are Richard Veal and Michael Connor, Mick and Dick, uh, as as they sometimes call themselves. Uh, and they're kind of a buddy cop duo. They're actually ex uh, Metropolitan Police detectives. Uh, the London Met is where they where they met and and where they both cut their teeth as investigators. They're both uh, retired from the force now and and working as private eyes. And uh, one thing they do as private eyes is is investigate these very complex maritime cases. So they were hired by the Berlantes insurers at Lloyd's to track down witnesses, to uh, go through documents, to build a body of evidence of what had occurred and ultimately to prove that there had been a fraud. Uh, and it took them about uh, seven years of, of consistent work, but eventually they did do it. And unfortunately, one of the witnesses that would have been key to this investigation was David Mockett. And David Mockett, his role as a ship surveyor, if you could explain what a ship surveyor is, and ultimately what happened to, to, to David. David Mockett was a really unusual, uh, interesting guy with an with unconventional life trajectory. Uh, he was a Brit from Devon. He'd gone to sea as a young man, as a, as a commercial sailor, and uh, then come ashore uh, working uh, initially uh, in ports in Saudi Arabia, and then moved to Yemen to be a surveyor. And a surveyor is kind of like the, the person the insurance company sends if a tree falls on your house. Uh, they will send a claims adjuster to check it out, take some pictures, take some measurements, talk to you. Uh, write up a report, you know, making sure that uh, first of all, the tree did fall on your house. And second of all, that uh, you didn't push the tree over intentionally. And, uh, you know, all being well, uh, that report is positive and, and your money gets paid out. And David did that on massive scale for complex maritime accidents. So in the event of a marine collision, uh, if cargo was destroyed for some reason, if there was an oil spill or a sinking, he would go to the scene, evaluate what had occurred, and essentially be uh, Lloyd's of London's eyes on whatever had happened. So he was hired in the Berlante case uh, because he uh, lived in Yemen, as I mentioned. He was at this point uh, one of a very, very few uh, surveyors left in that part of the world because Yemen was an extremely volatile, unstable country. Uh, and he was very good. So he was the obvious person to call. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, about two weeks after he began looking into this incident and after he had begun to have significant doubts about the veracity of what he'd been told had occurred, he was killed by a car bomb that had been placed uh, under the seat of his Lexus SUV, clearly intended to kill him and only him. And so this wasn't an act of, of terrorism. This seems like it was an orchestrated hit on someone that had discovered some some dirt on this potential scuttling of a vessel. So how did he, uh, backing it up just a little bit on, on David, the ship was was ablaze. They uh, they called out uh, a salvage company. I think uh, Vasilios Vargos is, is another main character in your story. Hopefully we'll dig into his background a little bit. But uh, they eventually got the blaze under control, and it took David a few days just to get out to, to do his work as a surveyor, didn't it? That's right. So uh, the vessel had been burned out completely. It was still afloat, uh, but uh, it was uh, 
in financial terms, a write-off. I mean, it was, it was completely destroyed. And uh, floating about 20 miles offshore uh, from Aden, the city in Yemen, uh, where David Mock had lived, it did take him some time to get out there. He ultimately had to uh, hire a fishing trawler to get him out because there was no other way. Uh, and this is, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a crazy situation if you think about it. Like if you said to me, uh, there's a, a burned out oil tanker 20 miles offshore. Can you find a way to get out to it as soon as possible? I wouldn't really know where to start. Right. Uh, but in David's business, this was just the sort of thing you had to do sometimes. So uh, he did ultimately figure out uh, how to get there. Uh, there was some reluctance to let him on board initially, which he did find curious uh, and uh, became rather important uh, later on in the story. But, but ultimately, he did get out, uh, looked around, uh, did, did what's called a survey where he inspected the vessel in great detail and became suspicious, uh, thought that this story of a pirate attack couldn't possibly have unfolded uh, in the way that the crew claimed. And again, it didn't follow the the norms. You know, there was no ransom being taken care of. There was no commandeering of the vessel. They basically came on, they set the thing on fire, and he got to be a little bit suspicious. The fact that the chief engineer was left on board for hours on end before his eventual rescue by the U.S. Navy all started painting kind of a shady picture in his mind. And I think ultimately he was killed because of that that uh, instinct that he had developed in the in the course of his career. That is certainly the strong suspicion of uh, most of the people who've looked into this. Uh, now, you know, I should stress, uh, no one's ever been charged uh, in David Mockett's murder, uh, much less convicted. Uh, it remains uh, unsolved. But, but yes, uh, the conclusion of most of the people uh, who I've spoken to who've looked into this case deeply uh, is that uh, he was killed because he was stumbling into something uh, much bigger than him. And so you, you said there was a, a certain amount of reluctance for him to be invited to do his job out 20 miles offshore. Who was, who was given the static on that? Who was, who was putting up roadblocks? So what happens when a vessel gets into trouble is salvage crews get involved. And salvers are, are really uh, remarkable uh, people. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing industry. Uh, these are men, and they are, uh, like sailors, almost always men who race to the scene of marine accidents and do whatever needs to be done to save a vessel and save its cargo. Uh, and this is incredibly dangerous work. Uh, salvers are killed all the time. Uh, but it's phenomenally lucrative because if you do save a gigantic oil tanker from sinking, uh, the way the business model works is you are entitled to a percentage of whatever value you protect. Uh, often it's 10 or 20 or even 30%. It's, it's often determined by arbitration in London. And so if you save a $100 million oil tanker, uh, you might be in line for 20 or $30 million to be shared out uh, among your crew. Uh, so uh, salvers will get to the scene of an accident incredibly quickly. Uh, and once a salver has uh, claimed a vessel, uh, he or she is in charge completely. And whether someone like a surveyor can get on uh, is up to the salver. So in this case, the salver was a Greek gentleman named uh, Vasilios Vergos. And he didn't seem to want David Mockett to come on board, uh, certainly not at first. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the reasons for that, I think you can, you can speculate on, but certainly some people involved with this case uh, think it's because they were, uh, had some things they wanted to clean up. Uh, before they let it, before they let a surveyor uh, working for the other side, working for the insurers, come on board. 
Sure. And then when David eventually did come on board again in, during his investigation, he realized that some of the telltale signs were not there. And there was actually some suspicious business going on, which, you know, not wanting to give away too much of your book, but it seems like there were some definite coincidences uh, with the, this particular a vessel, the brilliant virtuoso. It was its owner uh, had also had another vessel at one point in time uh, suffer a similar fate. It turns out, I believe, the captain or was it the chief engineer was was also on that other vessel, and Brasilio Vir- Virgos was also the salver on that that other vessel, which did end up being paid off by by Lloyd's, didn't it? That's exactly right. So there had been another accident uh, in the same vicinity off the coast of Yemen with another oil tanker, the Ellie, two years earlier. And uh, in that case, the same chief engineer, a Filipino named Nestor Tavares, was on board. And the same salvers, uh, led by uh, Vasilios Virgos, this Greek uh, salvage guy who who was based in Yemen, uh, came to the scene. And ultimately, the Ellie uh, suffered uh, something, this is a fantastic uh, nautical term, suffered a catastrophic hogging, uh, which is uh, maritime speak for splitting in the middle like a watermelon. Uh, it was completely sheared in half, which I've been told by uh, shipping experts is something that's very, very difficult to do accidentally. The insurers at Lloyd's were extremely suspicious that this had been done on purpose, that it was an insurance fraud. But uh, as is very common in these cases, they didn't feel they could prove it. Uh, and that one was settled out of court. Uh, and so there was a payment in the end, probably not for the full value of the policy. We don't know the exact terms, but uh, it was not rejected outright, uh, which is something that I was amazed to learn about Lloyd's, uh, that actually suspicious casualties happen at sea all the time. And very often insurance pays out anyway. That's incredible. And then two years later, here we are again, the same cast of characters, a very similar fate happening to another uh, vessel that was, uh, I believe you said, $70 million for the vessel, $100 million for the uh, for the cargo and uh, a death and ultimately uh, someone who is not found guilty of any sort of mis- misdeeds at all uh, being Super Mario. That's uh, pretty much the size of it. Yeah. Uh, You know, someone said to me once that I only seem to do stories where where people get away with it, uh, which is remarkable. In this case, the the people who were found by a British court uh, to have carried out a fraudulent uh, act, uh, faking this pirate attack for the purposes of a giant insurance fraud, uh, did get away with it. Uh, No one has been charged criminally. Uh, the authors of this fraud uh, came out of it, uh, by some estimates, tens of millions of dollars better off. So it is it is a remarkable lesson in uh, just how much it is possible to uh, get done uh, in an industry where law enforcement is very fragmented and there are a lot of opportunities for mischief. It's a fascinating story. So how did, Matthew, how did you and Kit get, get wind of the story and how did you conduct your investigation? So Kit and I were colleagues uh, at Bloomberg in London. We had worked together on a story previous to this about uh, what happened when Goldman Sachs went into Muammar Gaddafi's Libya and, and uh, got into some, some very controversial uh, dealings with the Libyan government. 
And we'd enjoyed working together and Kit uh, got wind of this wild story shortly afterward. And he asked if, if I wanted to, to work on it with him. And, and the way he'd gotten wind of it is a bit funny. He'd actually been at a conference and uh, someone from one of the British police uh, agencies was giving a presentation that mentioned this case very offhand. But it was enough to perk, uh, perk Kit up to, to get him uh, interested. And uh, he happened to be not long after that at the High Court in London, the, the central courthouse, uh, for uh, most of the commercial litigation uh, in London and recognized a hearing that was related to this case. So he went uh, and, and uh, on that very first day, uh, he saw Mario Siliopoulos get arrested outside the courtroom. Uh, and thought, wow, this is a this is a remarkable story. So, so after that, he and I were off to the races, and uh, gradually we decided that first of all, this was an incredible tale with uh, fraud, murder, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, at least two uh, special forces rescues, which we haven't even talked about. Uh, these really compelling characters in the form of, of Richard Veal and Michael Connor, these two investigators who became obsessed with getting to the bottom of this case. And uh, about uh, four years ago, four and a half years ago now, we just thought, this is a book. Uh, so we got to work. And again, I'm so glad you did Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking murder and a global maritime conspiracy. It was just a page turner. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Where can people go to find out more about uh, Dead in the Water and your work? Uh, the best way to find out about the book uh, is to go to my website, which is uh, very easy. It's just matthew-campbell.com. Uh, and uh, there are links to many of my stories there, as well as uh, reviews and uh, ways to buy the book. Uh, and the book is, of course, available through uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Waterstones in the UK, uh, any major retailer you can think of. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for taking your time to be on the show today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Joe. Really enjoyed it. My guest today has been Matthew Campbell, author of Dead in the Water. To find out more about Matthew and his work, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode or visit the Grit Nation website at gritnationpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing with a friend, family member, or anyone else you think may get something out of it. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Joe Cadwell thanking you for wanting to know more today than we did yesterday. All right. How, how do you feel about that great, conversation? Great. Great. No, fantastic. Good. Thank you. Oh, good. Man, I, I really enjoyed it. And I didn't know about the Special Forces rescues. Oh, well, that was, um, yeah, you remember um, Roy Facey? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The guy who got pulled out of Aiden. Yeah, and then uh, another fella in uh, in in Greece too. In Greece, Placacus. Yeah, yeah. What what um, they call him? What was this Spectre X or something? Uh, X Ray was the other Greek guy. Uh, Placacus's code name was uh, Zulu Two. Yeah, well, that, I mean that was interesting stuff. But I think we got some really good things going on. Yeah, I think so. I think so.